welcome to Show Me The Money, the podcast that looks at the business side of movies and TV with me, Jess Robinson, and the wonderful Stephen Follows. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm very well. I'm a bit, I'm getting a little bit stressed about the lead up to the Edinburgh Festival now and my show and uh, the choreographer's got COVID and so on now I've got to jig some dates around and it's all like, yeah, it's all going to be fine. Did you know that they had COVID when they were coming up with the dances or do you now have to think back and realise that that dance routine that was mostly coughing is... (laughs) Very funny. (laughs) Sorry, I know this is very funny for me because it's not a real problem, but for you it absolutely is. But it's not really a real problem, is it? I mean, there are bigger problems in the world, so we're okay. Good. When when does it start becoming real? Like, when do you start doing previews and... and, um... Um, 22nd of July. Mm, Not long then, not long. Really not long. I should really learn it and get those dances choreographed and, oh God. Anyway. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Are you ready for our first lovely story? I'm so ready. Okay. After two years of upheaval because of the COVID pandemic, one of the biggest debates of the movie industry appears to be settled. What is one of the biggest debates? Um, It's not going to be anything exciting like whether you're on Team Edward or not, unfortunately. Uh, It's to do with windowing. Um, Windowing. As in window cleaning? Uh, no, no, not window cleaning. I, I, actually, I, I'm kind of tempted to make the whole podcast you just guessing because I think that might be kind of fun. But um, <laughs> no, it's the window of release between when a film is in the cinema and when it's on its um, like first major other platform. So we, right. we call so yeah. So we call the 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 gap between when a film goes into different places the window, mm-hmm. and. The first window is usually, or historically, let's say before the last 10 years or so, the first window was theatrical, which makes it sound much more grandiose, but we mean cinemas because it's a US business and they say theatres. So theatrical is like the first window. And then the second window is hotels and airlines that everyone sort of half forgets because it's quite small and no one's taking planes just to uh, just to see a movie a bit early. So it doesn't sort of cannibalize anything. And then the third window is historically where you make most of your profit. And, and that would be... VHS and then DVD and now it's a whole mess of like is it like Netflix is it sort of a TV is it like a pay TV channel like over here might be like Sky Movies or whatever um, or is it iTunes or whatever and so that gap between the first window and the third window is the is the main one that everyone's sort of worried about and it, it's sort of the gap was getting smaller and smaller over the decades mm-hmm. and the cinemas were getting very annoyed uh, and it got down to about ninety days. And 90 Days was around where the studios in the US had sort of agreed and the sort of detente. But everyone was arguing. Everyone, the studios kept saying, oh, it's going to be less. And the cinemas were like, never, never, never. Um, and then the pandemic happened. And it kind of put this huge like bomb and all of this stuff because people couldn't go to the cinema and we had to adapt. But then obviously everyone knows that the studios are kind of sort of um, uh, lacing their fingers together and rubbing them together. Hmm, how can we use this opportunity to win this battle? Now that the cinemas are being distracted with this other thing they're fighting, the studios are thinking, ah. And um, so then the windows kind of disappeared or all got messed up during the pandemic. Uh, Some uh, small number of films, big films, were held back like um, Tenant, um, mm-hmm. which uh, Christopher Nolan was like, nope, it must go to theatres exclusively and then we'll wait a full amount of time before it's available on, in that case, I think HBO uh, Max, which is the Warner's version of Disney Plus or whatever. Um, and um, But most movies had a very sort of small, rocky kind of gap. And then as things start to settle down and as we started to have more films going to cinemas first, 
Um, the first one for over a year or so was another Warner Brothers film, which was the Batman. That was the first Warner Brother one. And then Doctor Strange. Oh, sorry. Time to No Time to Die. And then Doctor Strange. Uh, mm, Spider-Man No Way Home. That. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well. In a world of infinite that. universes, I don't know why that one was the one. But Anyway. Um, less said about that. But it did very well. I mean, it, it grossed sort of 930 million at the worldwide box office. So it did very well. And I think part of that, not all of it, not to be too unkind, but part of it was like, oh, we can go to cinemas and we can see this thing that's not available anywhere else. And so mm-hmm. then, so now we're the everything's sort of kicking back up. We're, what the new uh, window is, is 45 days. Cool. 45 days so it's kind of what the studios kind of wanted initially and the, and the exhibit the, the exhibitors the theaters they're just delighted that they can have movies again mm-hmm. and so um Tim Richards who runs view said we're all in agreement on 45 days I don't see any more discussion about windowing this is sorted done closed and uh, the studios have realized that they can't or at least it's a lot harder to release to make a big movie really big if they go straight to their streaming platforms. Right. So like Top Gun is, is is done incredibly well, brought in loads of money, but also is being seen as a big film. So therefore it's worth more in the following windows of release. But if it had gone straight to a streaming platform, I don't think it would have done nearly as well, either financially or also in people's minds. And so mm. the studios are kind of remembering what cinemas can do as well as bringing money. Yes. It can also make it into a movie, like a big thing. Um, but... Before we get too happy, well, not happy, but before we get too settled, everyone in the industry completely agrees, everyone's on board, no disagreement apart from most people in France and Italy. Oh. Yes. So this is, so the, the big battle has been in the US between between the um, the studios and the uh, National Association of Theatre Owners. I think that's the, I think that's the acronym, but it's NATO, not NATO, not that NATO. Uh, and they've been having that fight and that's been consuming most of the trade press. So when we say it's been settled and 45 days is the new sort of theatrical window, we actually, it's overlooking the fact that things are getting more contentious in Europe. Right. So, yes, the French have usually had quite restrictive rules about when you can release things and it's just, um, it all comes from an ideologically different point of view as to America, they, they are much more entrepreneurial and it's much more sort of do whatever you can to get it to work. And that's where um, the studio system came from, where the reason it's in Hollywood, part of the reason it's in Hollywood is that it was a load of entrepreneurs who were just running away from patents that Edison had in New York. And they, they went as far as they could before they hit the ocean. And they were just trying to sort of run a business. They were sort of more crowd pleasers. Whereas in France and in, and in Italy and a few other places, it's more of an artistic expression and there's more state control generally. And so it's unsurprising that in America, it's all just down to people fighting and agreeing. And in France, the government's got involved and said, right, you can't do whatever you want. You have to do what we say, but for these reasons. So what it means is, at the moment, in France, there are strict rules. Uh, there's a four-month exclusive theatrical window. Mm-hmm. So you can't, if you put a film in, in theatres, you can't go anywhere else for four months. But then also it has to it has to then go to what we call pay TV. So this is television, but um, where people are paying a premium. So in the UK, that's Sky Movies or whatever. And that has to go there before streaming. So and it has to be there for at least six months. And so if Disney wants to put a film 
in French theatres. It then yeah. has to wait 17 months before it's available on Disney+. And oh, what wow. they... Yeah, it's quite a lot. So mm. for Doctor Strange and the, the Boring Multiverse of Madness, uh, which I think was the full title... Um, <sighs> Oh, oh, God, the fight with the blooming musical notes. I hated it. Yeah, I mean, I respect that. I respect what they're trying to do. And I it's get all it. artistic. <laughs> you have no respect. Damn no, this. Do you know what? Now, since we've been doing this, I was just sitting there going, God, this costs a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, of your money, because you paid to see it there. And uh, so, yeah, you're thinking that note. I paid for that. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so that that was going to release. Uh, that's going to be on Disney Plus everywhere mm. in the world on the twenty second of June this year, which is about forty eight days after its US release. Yeah. So that's in June twenty second. When do you think it's going to be on Disney Plus in France? Oh, I think in the new year. Now, if you've been paying attention, Jessica, and done your maths, you could have worked this out. Oh, please. <laughs> October twenty twenty three. Oh. oh, a long time. Yeah, it's a long time, right? So not even the coming that's October, crazy. the following one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and that's because of the the the, the rules. So it's not Disney have no choice about this, and so Disney are deciding what to do. And one of the things they've decided to do for one of their the new Pixar movie that's coming out, they're going to put it only on Disney Plus. It's it's going to sidestep going to. Uh, cinemas entirely so it's called strange world and uh it's just going to go straight to disney plus at the same time as everyone else but it just means that people french cinema goes won't get the chance to pay to see it right and it's part i mean i don't know the internal workings of disney so it could just be that they are saying we don't want to have we want to have a simultaneous disney plus release uh, worldwide because it is part of our strategy and it is like easier to market everything and we benefit from twitter and social media or it could also be that they're trying to make a point. They're trying to sort of say to French cinema goes, mm, well, if you're not happy with this, maybe talk to your government because we want to, but we're not allowed to. Mm. Um, but there is, I mean, there are ways around it. So Netflix have managed to reduce the the gap between when they can put things in theaters and when they can have it, when they can stream it. I mean, not by much. They've reduced it by a few months, but they've done it by paying money. <laughs> So this is this is not an illegal and not it's not an illegal bribe. It's all been declared. It's all part of things. But they have pledged to spend forty five million pounds, uh, forty five million dollars, sorry, every year on independent French cinema. And so they've shortened the window. And um, there was a quote which I absolutely loved from the managing director of the French Exhibitors Group, so the French version of uh, NATO, which is the FNCF, I think, FNCF, yeah. And they said, um, this guy said, the system in France is actually incredibly fair. You pay more, you go first. Now, I don't think that's what fair means. No. Uh, arguably, that's unfair, surely. Um, but... Whatever. I think what they mean is fair to Canal Plus, who that they invest like 200 million euros a year in French film, and that's what they're protecting. So it's not that they're trying to be anti-Disney or anti-Netflix. They're trying to protect the fact that they have local um, pay TV markets that if that would get squished if Disney decided to squish them. Um, and I do remember when I was in South Africa a few years ago, but pre-pandemic, and I was talking, I was at one um, the Durban Film Mart, and I was talking to some 
people there and they were very worried about Netflix opening up and, and the office in South Africa. Oh, that was it. They didn't even have an office, I don't think. They were just turning on the system for South Africa. And then the local um, uh, manufacturers of content were like, well, how can we possibly compete? They're not even going to have an office. They're just going to flip a switch and suddenly South Africans can sign up to Netflix. And then they've got all this content and people are going to cancel our stuff. So I think that's what the French are worried about. They've got very healthy artistic um, industry that invests hundreds of millions of euros in, in native films. But if they don't protect that window, then Canal Plus can't possibly compete with Netflix, which is, I mean, spending an absolute fortune. Um, and so how can they possibly compete with that? Um, I mean, if you think around the world, Netflix are spending about $18 billion on content and Disney spend $33 billion. And if all of that is available in France, on you know, then Canal Plus can't touch that. It's not a fraction, not even a tiny percentage of it. And then it looks like the Italians are going to do something similar. So the Italian government recently said that anything that got Italian government funding, any film, they would have to have a, a window of a similar sort of length. And now they're saying it'll be all films, which has surprised quite a few people. And uh, the if you look at the top three productions from last year, Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, No Time to Die in June, they made as much money as the top 150 Italian titles. So... Wow. If just if this if the Italians do what the French did, and then the studios do what they did what they're doing for this new uh, animated film that's coming out later in the year, which is not put it in cinemas, you can see that French and Italian cinemas are going to lose a huge amount of income, and so that it's about which do you try and protect? Do you protect streaming? Do you protect TV? Do you protect local production cinemas? And so, although the issue is sorted, you know certainly in the US. It's kind of, it's it's turning up into a bigger and bigger, ramping up into a bigger and bigger fight um, in in Western Europe. So uh, we'll have to see what happens with that. I suspect it might turn into an ideological thing. You know, these US, these Americans are trying to tell us what mm -hmm. to do and, and destroying our culture and our art. And, you know, if that becomes the narrative, then it could run on for a very long time because that's not going to disappear. That's got a very ready audience, for, you know, that argument. Uh, the government aren't going to change their minds very quickly. And then Disney, it doesn't make sense to, you know, break the rules for France. You might as well just not put it in French cinemas and just give a Gallic shrug and move on. <laughs> well, we will see what happens. I mean, um, it's very interesting, isn't it? Do you care if movies are in cinemas first? Does it change your impression of the movie? Um... I think it hypes them up a bit. Yeah, I think I think to myself, oh, should we go and see that or should we wait till it's on streaming? It must be, it, it automatically makes you think it must be a big deal. You know, it must be mm. decent if it's in a cinema, but which we all know is absolute rubbish. <laughs> but it it's, does, it's the PR of it, isn't it? It is one of those things in life that we think we, we even though we know the facts has a completely it doesn't it doesn't justify it. Like for example, example limos are fancy. Limos are not fancy. They are not hard, not not expensive. They're trashy and they're usually hired by trashy people. But there's still this sense of oh a limo, and I think <laughs> I think it's the same thing. Like oh this is in cinemas, and yet what's in cinemas is is no better than what's on television. And arguably a lot of television is a lot better. So, uh, yeah, you're right. It's and I, and I think that will, it's interesting because I think a lot of people said that would shift. They were like, oh, no, streaming, everyone will understand that streaming, you know, is where movies exist. And cinemas were like, no, I think you need us. And uh, the studios during the pandemic went, no, we don't. 
And Warner said for a whole year, we're never going to cinemas. And now they're all coming back going, please, can we put things in your cinemas? Please, can we do that? <laughs> and um, yeah, I think that's because we all, we know where movies begin. We know where movies are. Interesting. Yeah. What are you looking forward to watching next? Is there anything that, that's exciting you that's coming to the cinema? Uh, I'm trying to think. I um, I don't know, actually. I, I got to the point where I was... Movies last summer were really important because it was the first place I think I could go out, you know, during uh, maybe the spring of last year when lockdown was starting to ease. I'd go and see a movie at like... 11 in the morning on a weekday uh, and so that I was there were fewer people in the thing and it became like oh god I get to go back to cinemas and things like that and now I've had a we've had a run of pretty mediocre um big blockbusters and everything I feel like I'm less bothered by that and I'm and some of the streaming services have got really good content so I'm not and also because the weather's nice I'm not really dying to get into cinemas for it I'll go and see some stuff but um mostly I've been going to see stuff in you know, like 4DX, you know, with the wind and the rain and they throw you around because it's, I'm not seeing high art at the moment. Um, yeah. I did during, during that pan, uh, during the post-pandemic period, I did notice a very worrying trend with the movies I saw, which is that what I would go, <laughs> I, well, not the kind of worrying films that you see in the Curzon from what we've heard from previous pods. I mean, <laughs> very different. This is not an R-rated story. Uh, so I would go and see, I would walk to uh, one of these everyman cinemas that have these really plush, like sofas and Love chairs it. and stuff like, yeah, really nice. And I would try and go in the mornings because there'd be fewer people. And I'd go on a weekday because, you know, I don't have a real job. So I can move things around and not go when everyone else is going. And then I went to see a lot of art house films and uh, dramas and stuff that sometimes they can be a little dry or boring. And twice in, in the same month, I had to go and wake up one of the few other patrons because they were snoring too loud. <laughs> It was all these old people in Chelsea who would like go and see these dull movies and have a glass of red wine and a pizza and just start sleeping and they'd <laughs> snore so loudly. I'd have to go up to, I'm so terribly sorry, you happen to be snoring. Would you mind waking up? And when it happened for the second time, I was like, wow, I really remember the movies I used to see when I was 15. <laughs> it's very, very different. Talking of old people, <laughs> this oh, is a horrible thanks, link. Thanks. What a mean link. Oh. Uh, details have emerged about veteran movie stars like Al Pacino and Robert De Niro receiving crazy fees for minimal work just so films could be sold in foreign markets. How crazy are we talking? Well, I mean, uh, I, I do feel slightly attacked uh, and triggered by you saying me I'm old, but I also no, know I that... Meant, that I went Pacino was no, on. no, no. We all know what you meant, but, no, I but didn't. listen. <laughs> but unfortunately for you, we're now going to talk about how much actors are paid, and so you, it, you might end up feeling sadder at the end of this one. So I already I have more, feel sad. I know. I have more sympathy and empathy for you than I do have outrage for myself. <laughs> so this, I, I, and I don't know um, if this term also were you whether you feel triggered or related to this, but this is a particular type of movie that was nicknamed geezer teasers. Um, as in these feature old geezers. Um, right. but And the reason they're called teasers is because they've got famous people like Stallone or Bruce Willis or Mel Gibson, but only for relatively Five small minutes. amounts of times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A cameo, lots of close-ups and things like that. And it became a sort of subgenre. Um, so yeah, geezer teasers. Um, and they were, it was a kind of, I mean, they still exist, but there was one particular guy called Randall Emmett, uh, Randall Emmett who mm. uh, produced a huge number of these. 
Um, and he was in with a lot of the um, big stars and they would be paid large amount of money to go and do simple bit of work. And everyone knew the film was terrible. And But the thing is they would sell, first of all, they'd shoot them wherever they could get the tax breaks. And then they'd be very strategic about how little time they had for these uh, largely aging white actors, these male actors. And then they would release them in foreign territories. And, and they'd release them everywhere. But the foreign territories would be like, okay, I, I don't mind. I just I, Everyone knew what the hell good or bad these films were. Mm-hmm. As in, not very good. Um, and <laughs> the stars knew themselves. And so they'd get quite a lot for this. So do you want... Let's, oh let's go into what Robert De Niro got for uh, a movie called Savage Salvation. Uh, so what's so what's happened just actually for context I, I won't go into too much detail because it's not so happy but Randall Emmett has been uh, is in uh, is in a lot of legal trouble for some civil fraud and harassment allegations and things like that that's not what I really want to talk about because I don't we don't know yet it's ongoing but it does sound like many people have been complaining and um, but what it's meant is in the process of that case various emails and things have been released which has allowed us to sort of put together uh, some of these deals and understand what they got so Robert De Niro. Oh, by the way, can I ask you? So, other than, other than just the pay that you get up front, mm-hmm. what would you regard as a bonus or as a perk of doing an acting role? Is there anything else that you get? I mean, do you get lunch? Do you get to keep the costume? Like, what oh, do you get um, beyond the money? Beyond the money, uh, if it's something, if it's something decent, you. you your profile is raised a bit, which is good because that means that you get mm-hmm. better work and if it's a good director you know that sort of thing you might be able to work with them again and that that sort of thing um if the costume is really nice you can ask to keep it sometimes you, you can buy it from them <laughs> give you a discount that's Honestly, nice i had to buy i did <laughs> in one of my first jobs i um did uh chuckle vision with the chuckle brothers oh amazing and i had a really lovely jacket and i asked if i could keep it and i had to buy it did it? Was it more than the amount you were paid? Did Probably, you lose money on the game? To be gig? honest, um, so that was an interesting experience. Um, th- then you would expect, if it's like a sketch show or something like that, you might expect royalties. Mm-hmm. I still get little windfalls of um, really random, like uh, sketch shows and things that I've done. Well, nearly. 11 12 years ago and then you just get a little oh, wow. but you like it's random you just get suddenly 40 quid through or whatever which is bonkers um it's not too shabby though a bit, bit well, of money right. bit a bit of money all so. right yes all right i mean just get sucked up by my overdraft but that's okay <laughs> <laughs> but less so random costs yeah yeah well let's compare do you want to yeah, compare it to on. robert de niro yeah. okay does he get so, random 40 quid um <laughs> are you sitting down with a cup of tea <laughs> yeah i've got a okay. cup of tea so this is a movie that he knew was, you know, I think it's fair to say that everyone knew this wasn't going to be a good film. So this is only this. He's not doing it for any other reason, like the art or the enjoyment or whatever. He got um, $11 million, which is a lot of money in itself. But um, this is the terms of his contract. So he was going to do eight days work for this $11 million, which includes pre-production and post-production. So right. if you went to a costume fitting, that would be one of his eight days. Um so he got uh, got eight different things I got here in a bullet point list. Um, round trip of private um, air transportation in a Gulfstream 4. I think I think they're one of the good ones. I mean, they're certainly one of my favorites. I don't know which Gulfstream you prefer, <laughs> but I always think the 4 is the classic. Um, 
I have no idea. But the fact that they defined it means it must be one of the good ones. They're not going to define it if it's one of the the crap ones, are they? Um, So yeah, round trip, private, you know, he has his own jet for this. Um, The right to retain all non-rental costumes, apparel, clothing, props, prosthetics, and wigs. So Robert De Niro gets the jacket. um, And it's probably a nicer jacket. You know, from the Chuckle Vision, from the Chuckle Brothers budget up to De Niro. I don't know. It was Warehouse. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, so far you're not you're not getting the jet for the Chuckle Visions, and you didn't get no, the eleven million. No. But let's say that you got you got a Why jacket. Why did I use Chuckle Vision as a blooming example? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, oh, so anyway, so he also gets um, yeah. travel accommodations per diem, which is just amount of money and yeah. cash for each day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ground transportation for exclusive hair, makeup, wardrobe, and costume personnel with up to an additional $100,000 put towards their salaries and kit rental. Wow. So that oh. hundred, that, that that travel accommodation per diem and, tra- and transportation is, is not for him. It's for his exclusive entourage. hair, makeup, wardrobe, and costume oh. personnel. For his entourage of yeah, people that make him look good. Yeah, the Beverly Hills do that too. So your personal, the, the uh, squ- uh, Jess squad, squad Jess, Jess squad, not sure. Yeah, the glam squad. Yeah, Glam Squad, of course. Uh, they would all get uh, up to $100,000 put towards their salaries so that he could say, I want this person, I want that person. Oh, wow. Um, travel per diem, ground accommodation, and accommodations at the Ritz-Carlton for his personal trainer. So, so far, his personal trainer is being treated better than you. Um, the same for his personal assistant. Um, then he gets a seven-day vacation for De Niro and his family at the Ritz-Carlton following production with all expenses paid. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, only two more left. Um, following Puerto Rico vacation, De Niro may request a jet for an additional Caribbean location for a vacation of up to two weeks. Oh. If De Niro does not want to take his vacation immediately following the, the Puerto Rico stay, he can take it with him and his family back to New York. But he may request a jet at any point in the next 12 months to take him to the Caribbean. How bloody lovely. While on the Caribbean vacation, expenses up to $100,000 will be paid. Wow. And then finally, uh, one round trip uh, private jet between New York and Los Angeles for up to a five night stay anytime with the next 12 months. Lovely. In addition to the 11 million. Um, when I had the Chuckle Brothers put cat food on my face. Both, you know, that's quite, I mean, did they, as long as they didn't get it on the jacket, or maybe, maybe you would have got a discount if they'd been wear and tear. Oh. Um, but I mean, Al, Al Pacino got um, six million for nineteen days work, which is not bad. Um, Stallone was going to get eight million for four days work. Wow! Um, and the thing is, people know that these are not great films. So, for example, there was an email with Al Pacino, and Al Pacino, to be fair to him, actually said some of this in the press as well, which I thought was very funny. Um, where he, he, someone asked him, "Why are you in these series of just terrible, terrible movies?" And uh, he said that he likes to elevate them. He likes to take terrible movies and make them mediocre. (laughs) Honestly, this is true. So let me read you out. This is written by Pacino to Randall. Um, And I'm not going to do the accent because I can't do the accent. But um, let's do this, Randall. I'm not, and this is when he talks about letters like A's and B's, he means how good the movies are, right? Yeah. Let's do this, Randall. I'm not going for the A's or the B's. I'm going for something between C and B. I don't like the D's, but as long as you put the effort in when you know about filmmaking, I'm sure we'll get to a B minus. And that's good enough for me if it's good enough for you. So, uh, yeah, he, he basically don't make it like the world's worst film. Um, fly me and my fam- family and my entourage around. Pay me like however many million. And sure, you can put my name on this 
and then that'll allow you to pre-sell it. You know, I mean, and he's devaluing his brand every time he does this because Al Pacino's brand is worth far less than it used to be because everyone knows he's done terrible films. But there's that lag in people's perception, isn't there? So there is a window of time where you can be selling your brand. Um, and Nicolas Cage went on that where he was a big movie star. Then he had tax problems. He started doing all these terrible movies. He paid off all his tax. Then he started being much more selective again mm-hmm. and doing art house films and good films. And then he's sort of reclaiming his value. Whereas Pacino, Pacino and um, De Niro haven't done that yet. Um, and then there's the, the slightly sad case of Bruce Willis. Um, so Bruce Willis, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so he's got aphasia, so which is a, uh, cognitive disease disorder. Yeah. And so he's, it's, it's affecting his ability to process language. It doesn't affect his intelligence. It's more just sort of language and stuff like that. And we didn't know this. This was kind of, um, uh, it was private. And so a lot of people were, make, and myself included, were very much making fun of the films he was doing because he was doing yeah. the same thing that all these other people have done, which is doing increasing. I mean, he released six or seven movies or he was in six or seven movies in one year and they're terrible. And he's just reading off cue cards and stuff like that. And it, it, he is going down the same path. And he, he was working with this guy as well with Emmett. Um, he's going down the same path as everyone else. The reason it's a slightly different case is because it's very clear that Emmett knew that Bruce was suffering from this condition. Right. And so the only, well, Emmett's only directed a couple of films. He's produced hundreds and hundreds, but he's only directed a couple. And he he directed one uh, that was released in 2000, uh, 2021 called Midnight in the Switchgrass, which um, was uh, like involved like cue cards and something. And they even in his contract, Bruce Willis, uh, there was someone who's paid $4,000 a week to feed Bruce Willis lines through an earpiece. And so you can definitely see that everyone who should have known did know that he was dealing with this disorder. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily they were taking advantage of him. Maybe he wants to, certainly if you're having, if you're aware that your future income is going to be impaired because of your disability, then maybe you want to fill up the bank account as quick as possible so you can look after yourself and your loved ones. Fine. Um, And as I said, it doesn't affect intelligence, so it might well just be processing of language. But at the same time, it it feels a bit shady and it's also although it's although this isn't the biggest problem or victim with it to some degree you're cheating your audiences as well who remember people like Bruce Willis in their prime and are thinking mm. great I'm going to get this really cool show and he's going to mm. a really cool production and he's going to do this really good bit of acting and then actually what you when you watch them they are I mean they're technically films but they really you feel cheated I think well certainly I do I've seen a few of them and you just don't feel like you're getting what you bought, although technically you are, it just doesn't feel like it. And so yeah. it's um, a race to the bottom. You know, how quickly can you do this before everyone says, no, I'm not buying any more of Pacino films because they're all terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so that you've now got a new checklist for next time you do Chuckle Vision yeah. or the new version of. Um, <laughs> you can say, I want the De Niro package, which is yeah. the holiday, the entourage, the oh, 11 million. holiday. And then what you settle on is the free jacket. That's where you, because then you'd have to buy the jacket off them. I think start high. Start really high, sure. Okay. Uh, and work downwards. Mm. I think I think you could do that. I might get a whole outfit out of it. Who knows? Okay, okay, okay. okay. Don't be a diva. <laughs> Calm down. Calm down. I mean, honestly, you get a little bit of fa- <laughs> We've got a listener question uh, from Jonathan Root, which is spelt W-R-O-O-T. That's Root, isn't it? Or is it yes. root? Um, <clears throat> he says, Hi both. 
I'm really enjoying the show. I'm really enjoying the Show Me the Money podcast. I will be recommending this to my university students next academic year. He's a very, very serious person. <laughs> you are both sharing so much interesting information about the film, TV, and entertainment industries. I mean, I think you're sharing the really interesting information. I'm saying things about ChuckleVision, but thank you. For <laughs> Oh, though a lot of discussion in the trade papers is focusing on the spending that's being carried out by the streaming services such as Netflix and Amazon, we cannot ignore that a lot of the big studios and their infrastructure in terms of production and distribution is still in place. So my question is, how soon are exhibition, distribution and long tail deals usually discussed, meaning everything after a cinema release? Very good. He got posher and posher. He did. The question well, went I, on, I which forgot is good. to do a voice, actually, but I saw university. I saw he was a professor and I thought, oh, m- mustn't it be silly to a teacher. <laughs> Anymore. Anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally willing to bet that you have been silly to a teacher in your life. Yeah. So my question is, how exhibition, distribution, we, long we got so close. we discussed, meaning everything after a cinema release. We got so close to doing that sensibly. And then at the very last second. Sorry, guys. um, (laughs) Sorry, Mr. Root. Great question. Um, And thank you for the support of the pod. Um, I'm loving the questions we're getting, by the way. Like, just as an aside, like, this is, we get such diverse questions and really interesting ones as well. It's not just um, simple answers. Sometimes they're like, oh, how does that work? And I think that's really fun to talk Mm. about. But I would also, you know, take what's your favorite color? I'd be happy for that one. Uh, I, don't, I don't think you want to have like really involved questions for Stephen. And then, by the way, Jess, what's your favourite colour? <laughs> I feel do, a... I do want that. <laughs> okay. Can every sensible question please have a, a single word answer for Jess? Also <laughs> answer as well. <laughs> do you like ponies? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Now over to Stephen for the in-depth analysis. <laughs> no, don't like that. Don't like that. Um, yes. Good question. So, um, so we're in an interesting time because... Um, there's sort of, um, I mean, I'm grouping this, I'm, I'm adding these groups. It's not like it's exactly this obvious, but you could say there are three kind of sources of content at the moment when it comes to movies. You have the traditional studios, and I'll, and I'll come back and explain them in a minute, but you have the traditional studios. You then have these new um, new studios, if you will, like the, the streamers. And then you have the independent film sector that's doing all of their deals and all the things they used to do. So the first and third of them, the studios and the independent sector, are operating largely similar than they always did before, or at least they're trying to. And then it's the streamers in the middle that is creating this huge disruption because they're doing things differently and and they're adapting to the same challenges differently. So traditionally, I mean, the, the number of studios has changed over the years, but for the last few decades, it's been the big six, which was uh, Fox, Warner, Paramount, uh, Sony, Universal, and Disney. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years ago, well, a few more years ago, um, Disney bought Fox. So I guess there are five studios now because they've subsumed Fox. I think, you know, Fox still exists as a brand and things, but all the Fox content is on Disney Plus. So mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like a standalone studio. But then you've also got, in, in the second category, you've got Netflix, Amazon, and Apple. And they do they come from Silicon Valley. They, I mean, they've hired film folk, but fundamentally they come much more from a tech bro background than the studios where most of the people in charge of the studios have been in the system since they were in the mailroom as a kid or their cousin was in it. Or, you know, there's a tribalism there that's very, very different. 
And so a lot of the studios have worked in the same sort of way. There's a lot of cross-pollination between the studios and, and there's sort of a slow oil tanker kind of approach to change. And yet these streamers just randomly do things <laughs> and they'll hire loads of people and fire loads of people and spend, and that's sort of changing some of this. But so the question was around the infrastructure that studios have, and that has been built for long, slow deal making uh, and with multiple third parties. So uh, let's say Fox would release, Fox would make a film, 20th Century Fox, uh, but they would also, in most of the world, they have a 20th Century Fox office. There's one in the UK and that would release the film in the UK. In some of the smaller territories, they'll have a, a deal with a distribution partner where we don't actually release our movie because it's too small. We don't have we don't have our own office, so we'll do a deal with you and we'll do a percentage or whatever. Um, but those deals would be quite um, similar each time because you want a long term partner. You want the same person to do something so that you can rely on them and, and build that relationship up. Whereas the, the streamers are releasing their own content on their own platforms worldwide in one go, so. The studios are used to doing all these complicated deals over a long period of time, and Netflix just were like, "Well, we'll stick it on the server, you know. We'll just we'll put it in the system," and so that's changing how they have to think about these things because the studios are used to doing loads of little intricate deals. And um, so, yeah. So, how how far in advance? Well, uh, I did a study a while ago. I was um, uh, doing some teaching uh, in Birmingham, and. The students there were, we wanted to do a project together. We wanted to do like a data project to sort of help understand the industry. So we split, we looked at loads of movies that were released between 2006 and 2016. So mm -hmm. very much pre-pandemic world. And uh, everyone was assigned a few different movies. And we all went away and had a look at when they were first announced in the trade press, when they began pre-production, when they began shooting, and when they were finally finished and ready for release. And all of them, because there was so so many of us, we were able to come together and have, I think it was thousands of movies, all these dates. So we actually could look at an average of how long it takes a Hollywood movie from when it's first announced to when it's released. Mm -hmm. So here's my question to you, Jess. How many days do you think on average, and I'll allow you to be really rough on this one. It's not like I'm going to ask you to be like, well, is it morning or afternoon? Um, how many days between when a movie is first ever announced, we're going to make this movie, and when it's released? Um, <clears throat> well, I'm thinking along the lines of TV and theatre and stuff like that. And I think it's probably longer because you've got to get all your ducks in a row. Mm -hmm. Bigger ducks as well. It's Hollywood. Big, big ducks. Big ducks. Exploding piece. ducks. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to say four to five years. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's like one and a half thousand days or so, that sort of level. Yeah. Um, th there are some that are like that. Um, it's nearer about 900 days. Oh, goodbye. So, no, but the thing is, you, you've got the right order of magnitude in the sense that it's a long time. Yeah. You know? um, it's a very long time between when they first say they're going to do it. And obviously, when they say they're going to do it, they've obviously done a lot of work already because they don't wake up and say, we're going to do a new Snow White. Right, call the press. So yes, there might be right. So they've already got some ducks in a row anyway, haven't they? And then they do they the have. release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've worked out all the ducks they're going to give, um, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of them don't have any more ducks to give. Honestly, they just <laughs> <laughs> all the stuff with the pandemic. They're just all out of ducks. Um, 
Yeah, so th there will be a huge process. And so sometimes it can be, a you know, maybe a 10-year development plan where they've been, or not plan, but 10-year development process where they've been trying to get the script ready or get the rights. Sometimes it can be very small, like they they've did a, a day where they were thinking about what movies to release and they found one and then they spent a few months developing it and then they announce it. Uh, interestingly, they announce different types of movies at different um, points. So, for example, movies that come from uh, things in the public domain, like uh, urban legends, that kind of stuff, they get yeah. released, they, they get announced far earlier. That is near, I mean, the ones from Legends and Fairy Tales were released sort of, were announced sort of uh, 1,300 1, days before release. And I think it's so they can sort of do a land grab and say, we're making this because anyone else could, but we, we, we're going to do this. Whereas the, the ones based on original screenplays uh, were released, were announced far less. It was sort of 750 or something like that, So, which is almost half. So it's interesting when they release it, it's got as much to do with announcing, right, we want this 4th of July weekend in two years time for us. Um, we, we, we're claiming it now. Mm -hmm. um, don't, don't release your movies around here or don't make another Pinocchio because we're making one or whatever. So some of it is that. Um, right. But yeah, so that in, in answer to the question about when the deals will be done, well, pretty much at that point, it could be or before uh, that stage. So you've got a script. The next stage of, um, of the development of the movie is called packaging, where you put the and we talked a little bit about when this when the agents were doing this a few mm -hmm. pods ago, where you put on the key cast and crew. And th that point, if you have Robert De Niro, uh, and you have this director, whomever they are, you can go to to the French distributor or whoever and say, hey, do you want to come board uh, this movie? Um, and do you want to buy the TV rights? And because everyone knows the movie is going to get made. And also, they wouldn't pay any money until they actually deliver. So if let's say it did fall apart, it wouldn't matter. It's a promise that would never be fulfilled. And so those deals can be done way in advance. Um, and even beyond that. So if you're making the second Harry Potter film, you might say to the BBC, whoever you're doing the deal with, we'll agree this amount of money for the rights, but also every subsequent one, the BBC might want to be like, oh, we're the place where you get all the Harry Potters. Mm. So you could do deals far in advance. You also could do deals where a studio will do an output deal. So they'll say the next 20 movies we release in cinemas will, will go to the BBC and the BBC will pay a set amount for every movie. Some of them will be really big, some of them will be really small, and the studios are trying to release a couple of extra small ones so they get better value. But then they'll, you know, so there'll be a sort of an average of all of them. Um, and I, I did actually find, um, uh, this was a kind of fun little thing to research because I remember uh, a film called Valerian. Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Do you, did you oh, ever hear about that film? No, I didn't. It's kind of, it was the most expensive French film of all time. Uh, it, it was in English. It was from Luc Besson, and it was uh, actually, I think it was about five years ago. Um, it's based on a comic book. Um, and what's interesting about it, well, there's a few things that are interesting about it. It was an independent film, but it was such a big budget. It was 180 million, which means it acted like a studio film. So it was a good example of the middle ground between studios and indies. And I mean, it completely flopped. It, it, was, it was not mm. good. It's very pretty, um, uh, but it's just, it's got... I mean, it's, as I said, a huge budget. The visual effects are amazing. It's got Rihanna. It's got Color Delavine. Mm -hmm. um, it's based on this comic. Um, but uh, it looked like it wasn't going to do well once people started to see it and say it wasn't very good. But the um, people behind it said, we're not going to lose any money on this. Um, and everyone said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, the vast majority of the budget that we've spent has already been recouped from advanced deals. Oh, wow. So 
Yeah. So they, for example, they, they, uh, Orange, the telecom giant, bought yes. the rights to pay TV and video on demand for Europe and Africa for 9.3 million. And so they bought it in advance. So in those particular countries, on those particular platforms, uh, 9 million had already been put towards the budget. And then they, the uh, again in France, uh, TF1, the the TV channel, bought the rights to broadcast it after that for for just under four million dollars. And then another te- another French telecom outlet, Free, took the second broadcast rights. So once the first one for another two million. So that's just France. So you're adding up the VOD and the the first broadcast rights, second broadcast rights, and they've got fifteen million dollars there. And they said they sold it to one hundred and twenty countries. And so they said that they were only on the hook for about 10% of the total cost by the end. And obviously, now what happened was that the movie did very, very poorly. It did, I mean, it did okay. It didn't, I mean, it cost 180 and it brought in about 200, which is about half of what you needed to do to break even. So a lot of people lost money. But the most people that lost money were probably like the Chinese distributor who probably paid a huge amount of money up front. When they heard, oh my God, Luc Besson is going to make this film, he, and he and he's probably shown some of the early concept art and visual effects. He's shown the cast list, which includes you know Carla Delevingne and and Rihanna, yeah. and they've guaranteed it's going to be a hundred and eighty million dollar blockbuster. Uh, this Chinese distributor has probably thought, oh my God, I have to get this. I have yeah. to have the right to do this, and it's probably two or three years before the film is even going to be released. But I'm like, okay, we'll do the deal. We'll do the deal, and so they've agreed a certain amount of money up front, and then when the film arrives the distributor has to pay and they're like oh it's not very good is it um and so those people so the the loss if you if you will was spread across loads of people um and obviously there's a it's still a bad thing because i think the 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 company actually got in trouble a bit later on financially because they were expecting it to make many 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 millions so you probably the way you run the company when you're expecting to get hundreds of millions of euros in is probably very different than if you're expecting to lose a little bit of money yeah um, but yeah, so all of those things are done far, far in advance. And the more it is an obvious sell, like, oh, yeah, this is like the, the fourth Harry Potter film is not a hard deal to sell. But a brand new movie without a guaranteed budget, without guaranteed marketing, sp- marketing spend, with nobody famous and not based on an existing material, it's very, very hard to do what we would call a pre-sale. So sometimes you can sell them in advance, but mostly those ones are sold when finished. And the studio films sit in the first camp because if you have, you know, the permission to say that Chris Helmsworth is going to be in this and also uh, you know that the Disney are making it and Disney are saying we're going to market it and we're going to put our full Disney might behind it and it's going to come out 4th of July in four years' time, everyone knows. We don't know how good the film's going to be, but there's a narrow window for how well or badly it'll do. That's a good bet that we can now do a deal today. Mm-hmm. And then the studios have their risks minimized because they're like, okay, even if it bombs, we've still got all of this guaranteed money coming in. So quite far in advance is, a, is the short answer, I guess. Very good. I hope that answered your question, Jonathan Root. And um, if you were wondering, purple. Oh, now, now no one's got any reason to email us. Oh no, oh no. But who knows what was the question? We don't know now. Been your answer is purple to what every What colour is your bunion? Now. <laughs> now again. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, if you like Show Me The Money, then do give it a follow in your podcast app and uh, leave us a review and rating if you've got time. We'd like that very much. Only good reviews and only five-star ratings, so thank you. 
Um, if you've got a question that you would like answered on the show, then do email us at showmethemoneypod at gmail.com. That's showmethemoneypod at gmail.com. Thank you and good night from Jess and... Goodbye for everyone. Goodbye. Good night, apparently, for late night listeners. <laughs> You're just supposed to say Stephen. But there we go. Oh, okay. Love oh, you, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs>